Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. The world can often feel like a dark and sinful place. That's the kind of world that our story today begins in, a world where every living thing, from humans to animals, was so full of sin that God regretted his own creation, everything that is, besides one man and his family. In this week's message, Pastor David Cartwright dives into the story of Noah and his famous ark to think about what it means for the world to be so sinful and the lessons we can glean from this story to deal with sin in our world today. As we go to our message today, Let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. As we come to our message today, I'll invite you to turn in your scripture to Genesis chapter 6. We'll be starting there. Before we read, let us pray. Gracious Father, in these moments, may our hearts and our minds be still and open before you. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would enliven us, that we might hear your voice. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would guide me to speak words of your truth, to speak them in simplicity, with love and grace, that you would accomplish in our midst your good and perfect will. For every good thing that we receive and experience now, we offer only to you the praise and the glory in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Continuing in our journey through some quite familiar narratives of the scripture that uh, most of you, having been raised in Bible school or Sunday school, you would have become familiar with these stories And today we are looking again at one of those three righteous men of the Old Testament, the person of Noah and the narrative of Noah. Um, The graphic on the front of your bulletin, I think, quite well depicts a Sunday school uh, perspective of the story of Noah. It kind of looks like Noah got a bunch of animals together for a nice boat ride on Lake Tawakany, doesn't it? And honestly, that may be the spirit in which we remember how Noah is presented to us. I will say right off that I I don't envy anyone who would be challenged to either teach a children's story on Noah or to write a children's curriculum on Noah because to really convey what this narrative is about would be extremely difficult to teach a child extremely difficult and I think you're going to find that what's embodied in this text has a very different feel about it than what you might remember from children's Bible class I have another picture that I want to show you I'll ask Jim and David if they'll put that on the screen for a moment I this In the little bit of looking I did, this is probably the best picture I could find. If I were to ask you what you see here, the first answer you might give would be 
a ceiling of a church, right? Do you at least see that? Okay. And then if I asked you a second time what you see, what would you say? Do you see the hull of a ship? You should. Upside down, obviously. Think of, your, think of yourself looking at the hull of a ship from the inside. Flipped over. Okay? We're losing in our modern day something that has been part of the Christian faith for centuries, which is that even in the architecture of church buildings, sanctuary otherwise, there's theology that is communicated, that has always been so, not, not so much in modern worship spaces that are created to look more like an inter entertainment center or a theater, but uh, sanctuaries throughout the centuries were created to teach the theology and the story of the scripture. And so you will go, and if you go into many old churches, especially uh, the Catholic, the Orthodox churches, you will find ceilings that look like that. Some of them are so ornate that the, the symbol is, you know, that, that it actually gets a little bit lost. But as you go and visit old church buildings like that, keep your eyes on what that ceiling looks like. It is created to look like that for a reason, so that you are reminded of the story of Noah, that you are reminded of the vehicle of God's salvation that God had provided at that time. We get to the narrative of Noah in the sixth chapter of Genesis, and I want you to read along some of these sections with me. I'll, I'll tell you right up front that we're going to skip uh, the parts of the narrative where you get the instructions on building the ark, the calling of the animals two by two, some of those things you're quite familiar with. But I want to look at some of the different parts of this. Uh, and right at the beginning, read with me at Genesis chapter 6, and we're just going to read verses 5 through 12. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. It's unavoidable. We come face to face with two things the holiness of God, and the depravity of humankind. Those two things, I would contend, we hold in direct proportion to one another. What I mean by that is 
the degree to which you comprehend, which really is incomprehensible, incomprehensible, the degree to which you think about God being holy is going to be the same degree to which you understand and think about man's sinfulness. You will not have a proper understanding of God's holiness if you think sin is a small thing. Now, you might think otherwise. You might contend that, oh, no, I, I, I mean, God is holy, holy, holy. We sing that, don't we? Holy, holy, holy. I mean, God is really holy, but, I mean, sin really isn't that big of a deal. Now, if your idea of the corruption of humankind is small, your idea of God's holiness is small as well. And that's the contrast that comes into play when this narrative begins. A holy a God who is so perfect that you and I cannot comprehend in our minds looks down upon the corruption of man and he is appalled. That is how horrible sin is in the sight of man. And he looks upon his creation and he finds that we are utterly corrupt, with the exception of Noah, who finds favor with God. And we could explore that, which I don't want to take time to, but it's interesting that the narrative tells us one simple thing, Noah walked with God. It doesn't mean he was perfect, he wasn't, but it sets him apart. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 uses Noah as an example that being forewarned of things that had not yet come to pass, Noah built an ark. And by doing that, he condemned all other humankind. Condemned it? Really? Yes, because Noah found obedience to be the way when all the rest of the world wanted to walk as if God was a second afterthought. That's what set Noah apart. And Noah found favor. But other than that, God looks down in his holiness in verse 7, it says, God, God says, I will blot out man. Does that shock you? Does it seem to be an overstatement? Does it seem to be an overreaction? Do we think, oh my gosh, how could God react? I mean, to that degree. And if that's the way we think, I would contend that we try to put God in the same camp we are. Now, you and I, if we're honest with ourselves, probably have those moments when we get angry about something. Anybody ever get angry about something? Okay. And then you look back at it, either of your own initiative or maybe somebody close to you just kind of helps you there. And you realize that you have maybe reacted more greatly than the circumstances d determined, okay? You say, you know, it wasn't that bad, was it? My reaction was too much compared to whatever the issue was. But let's not put God in that camp. God is not an overreactor. If God's reaction to the corruption of man shocks us, It is because we have thought too little of the depravity of humankind and or too little about God's holiness. And those two things come right to the surface when this narrative gets underway. 
God's reaction is not an overreaction. He simply says that what they deserve is what they're going to get, which is judgment. The, the text goes on and it tells a little bit about how Noah is told to build the ark, very specific, you know, width, height, how you, how you do this and that, what he's supposed to bring on. But we move on to chapter 7, and we find that judgment is that which is going to come. There was a, a quote that I came across by A.W. Tozer, which I think is worthy to share here. Tozer said, quote, The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. We have in our minds that surely God won't bring judgment upon unrighteous people. Will he? God is too loving. God is too kind. Surely God wouldn't do that, would he? Oh, how we've led ourselves astray to think that. God rightly judges human sinfulness. Maybe I should have warned you all that this was not going to be a feel-good sermon. So if you came to hear your, have your ears tickled, uh, maybe next week, you never know, you know, but not this week. God rightly brings judgment upon sinful humankind, and that's what you find when you come to chapter 7. There, there's something I want you to see from chapter 7. It begins by God telling Noah to enter the ark, uh, take the animals. In verse 4 of chapter 7, it says, For after seven, this is God speaking, For after seven days I will send rain on the earth, Forty days and forty nights, and I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. That idea of forty days is repeated in verse 12, where it simply says that the rain fell upon the earth for forty days and forty nights. So often in the Bible, you find that number, don't you? Forty. Forty days. Forty years. Forty this. Forty that. Every time, I want to get ingrained in you so that when you hear that number, what you need to think of is that number means something. That in some way, what is being communicated to you is that that's the time necessary for something to be brought to completion. Forty is a number that means something is finished, something has been complete. Forty days in the wilderness, the time necessary for Jesus' temptation. Forty years in the wilderness, the time ready to bring, to get a people ready to enter a promised land. Forty means completion. And so when it says that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, what is it telling you? It is telling you that the time necessary to bring God's judgment upon the world was complete. And I want you to feel that this morning. That this was not just a, a minor thing. This was not, I'm just going to give you a little dose. This is absolute judgment upon creation. Drop down a little bit to verses 18 and 19 and 20. I want you to, to find your translation of the Bible may vary a little bit. There's a phrase that gets repeated three times. In verse 18, the water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth. Verse 19, the water prevailed more and more upon the earth. Verse 20, the water prevailed 15 cubits higher and the mountains were covered. Do you hear the repetition? 
The water prevailed. The water prevailed. The water prevailed. This was more than the creek rising. It is a picture that God's judgment became complete. As deep as man's sin was, the flood waters rose, and they rose, and they rose, and they rose, until they prevailed over everything upon which God was bringing judgment. Just to continue the thought, read with me from verse 21 to 24. All flesh that moved on the earth perished, birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind, of all that was on the, on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, died. Thus he blotted out every living thing that was upon the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, and they were blotted out from the earth, and only Noah was left together with those that were with him in the ark. The water prevailed, there it is the fourth time, the water prevailed upon the earth 150 days. And you'll find in there that God's judgment was just not, upon, not just upon humankind. It was upon all creation. And it teaches us that our sinfulness, our brokenness, our corruption gets tied to all the rest of the creation. It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul in Romans 8.22 spoke about the whole creation groaning yearning for the redemption of the sons of God. All creation is groaning. All creation is yearning for the redemption of God. Not just humanity. It's all tied together. And God's judgment gets poured out. These are verses that we would not be reading to our children. They just don't fit into a children's story. It's too hard to comprehend, but this is at the core of what the Noah narrative is about. It is about God's judgment, about the fact that God brought a flood to bring his judgment upon the world. But don't lose sight of this one thing, that God did not bring a flood without bringing an ark. He brought both. There's a very interesting image to me in verse 17. Drop back up, if you would, in chapter 7. The text says, Then the flood came upon the earth for forty days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. And you probably say, yes, that's what we would expect to happen, right? That's what boats do. They float on the water. And I would say, yes, don't miss the imagery. The flood waters rose and rose, and as, as the flood waters got higher, so did the ark. Think about this fact that, that the instrument of God's salvation, the ark, literally was in the agent of God's judgment, the flood water. It was sunk down into it. And as the waters got higher, the ark got higher. 
And so many times the narrative told us that the waters prevailed, the waters prevailed, the waters prevailed, the waters prevailed over everything with one exception, the instrument of God's salvation. Only one thing prevails over God's judgment, and that is God's instrument of salvation, which is the ark. It's a beautiful picture. And those who are in the ark are lifted up. We use the imagery of the water, of God's judgment, in our, in our baptism, a, a, a sacrament that is full of imagery. Of course, in the United Methodist Church, we practice three different forms of baptism. But when we baptize by immersion, what does that water symbolize? It symbolizes the grave, doesn't it? The grave which, it, which reminds us of God's judgment. You know, right? What, what did you know, Paul say that the wages of sin is what? Death. Paul didn't say that the wages of sin is a 10-minute timeout. God didn't say, you've been misbehaving. Go to your corner for 10 minutes and think about it. That the wages of our sin is death. When we baptize, we are, we are symbolically saying that we are joining with the one who went to the grave for us because the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is the judgment of God. But when we identify ourselves with the one who is our salvation, the grave has no victory over us. So we go into the water so that we can do what? Come out of the water as Jesus came out of the tomb. God's judgment is poured out. But when you get to chapter 8, there's an image of hope. Read with me, if you would, the first three verses. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. Also the fountains of the deep and the floodgates of the sky were closed, and the rain from the sky was restrained, and the water receded steadily from the earth, and at the end of 150 days the water decreased. You see, the flood water did not remain on the earth forever. There was a time at which God said, enough. Let me offer a parallel for you, in case your mind has not already jumped there. When our Lord and Savior hung on the cross of Calvary, he hung there for how long? until it was finished. Isn't that what he said? You see, our minds wanted to go to, well, let's see, how many hours was it? No, no, he hung there until it was finished, and he said so. What did he mean by that? The sin of the world the sin of the world was being put on the one righteous Son of God. And he hung there 
and took that until it was finished. And when it was finished, he said so. There's a beautiful parallel here because God says about his judgment, it's finished. And when it's finished, redemption set in. 150 days, the flood water subsides. Interestingly, it takes a whole lot longer than that for the land to actually dry out. You'll find if you look closely at the text that Noah and his party are in the ark for the better part of a year before things actually get to where he can leave. But God's judgment finds an end. And when it's finished, it's finished. God then moves to a time of covenant. Before we leave chapter 8, I want you to look at verse 21. There's something interesting there that we need to note as we move along. Uh, Verse 20 tells us that after they had left the ark, Noah made an offering of every clean animal to to God. Uh, Verse 21 says, The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. Two interesting observations. One is that the heart of human beings never changed, did it? (laughs) You would think that, that that the story might turn of saying, and from this point on, the hearts of humans were stellar, perfect, inclined toward God, but nothing changed. Nothing changed, and God knew that. They still haven't changed. But something did change. God said here, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. Now, there's disagreement on exactly what that really means. Did God mean that there would be no new curse put upon the ground? Did God mean that he was going to reverse the curse that was already on the ground that came in Genesis chapter 3? People aren't in a lot of agreement about that. We won't get sidetracked by it. There's a thought that I think moves us to a good place, which is that God is saying, we're going to move toward a new paradigm. No longer will it be that we are stuck inevitably in this cycle of sin and judgment and sin and judgment and sin and judgment because if that's where we're stuck, we have no hope. But God says there's going to be a new paradigm. And that's where he moves when you get to chapter 9. I want you to read with me a passage out of chapter 9 beginning at verse 8. We're going to read through verse 17 just to kind of get all of what is said here. Chapter 9, verse 8. Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, and all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all successive generations, I set my bow in the cloud, 
and it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the first time in Scripture where the word covenant appears. It appears a whole bunch of times after this. But this is the first one. We usually call this the covenant with Noah. Really, you could almost say it's a covenant between God and himself. Where all the rest of creation benefits. God said, my covenant is... Covenant is usually agreement where there are terms on both sides. But in this one, God doesn't give terms to human beings. He just says, the terms are with me. And the sign of it is the bow that I set in the cloud. And when I see that sign, I'm going to remember that I'm making covenant with you. Not only with you as people, but with all of creation. That judgment, even though it might be deserved, is not going to be the paradigm in which we are stuck. Because there's going to be another way. There's going to be a place where justice and mercy come together. And with a boat and a bow, God pointed us to that place. The place where he truly makes covenant for the salvation of humankind, which is at the cross of Jesus Christ. In our society, we hear cries for these two things all the time. We want justice. We want mercy. We want them. We're wired to want them. But the predicament in which we find ourselves so often is that we can't seem to get one unless we feel like we've sacrificed the other. When we truly feel like justice has been served, we're left thinking that mercy somehow was left out. And when we truly extend mercy, somehow we're feeling like justice really hasn't been served. It is so difficult to get those two things to come together. But God does what we so often find difficult, which is to bring those two things together. And he does it at the cross of Jesus Christ. Ravi Zacharias was so fond of often saying that it is at the cross of Christ that justice and mercy meet. And it's true. When we look at the one who hung on the cross of Calvary, what do you find? You find justice. Did, did, did God just turn his back on the sinfulness of humankind? No. We ask ourselves, why did the cross have to be so ugly? Why is it so gruesome? And the answer to that is go back to what we first discussed. It's that drastic contrast between the holiness of God and the corruption of humankind. That is how God views sin. It is just that ugly to him.
God didn't turn his back on punishment for sin. He put it all on Jesus. Justice was served, but not at the expense of mercy. Because when we feel like we need mercy, and usually, you know, it's kind of interesting. It's been pointed out that when we're crying for justice, it's usually because we want it to somebody else. And when we want mercy, we want it for ourselves. No one said amen to that. (laughs) Is there mercy at the cross? Of course there is. Because the one who hung on it looks down upon you and me and says, I'm doing this for you. If you ask the question, who deserved to hang on the cross of Calvary for the punishment of sin? The answer would have been, any one of us, any one of us, any one of us other than the one who actually hung there. He's the one who didn't deserve to hang there. And yet he's the one who went willingly so that you and I could receive mercy. We deserved the justice of God. We have available to us the mercy of God. It's at the cross that justice and mercy meet. How do you frame this in a children's story? I have no idea. It, it's, it's, a, it's a narrative that's too good not to tell. But to convey to a child the seriousness of what this account tells us is so difficult. I wouldn't want to try. (laughs) The ark. What is the one thing that rose above the agent of God's judgment? It's the ark. And that ark symbolizes God's salvation. Do you know who were saved? The ones who were in the ark. The only difference now is that when it comes to the gospel, the invitation is not just to one man and seven of his relatives along with some animals. The invitation is whosoever shall come. And in the words of the writer of Hebrews, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Do you know what the invitation is for us? Make sure you're in the ark. Because to stand before a holy God otherwise is something that we cannot do. Only in the ark of the gospel of Jesus Christ will we rise above and be delivered from the justice of God. And that's an invitation for you and everyone today. Make sure you're in the ark. Let us pray. 
Father, we confess it is difficult for us, really impossible for us to truly understand how holy you are and how corrupt we are. But Father, we thank you that you look with mercy and that you provide a way. We thank you, God, that your grace, the instrument of your salvation, is greater than all of our sin. And that in the ark of Jesus Christ, we will rise above. Father, I know that there are many who may not be sure, who may not have come to you in repentance, and surrendering, surrendering their lives to you. And I pray, God, that this would be the day that, that they would do that, that you would speak to those hearts that are still estranged from you, that you would bring them to you, that they would know the salvation that you have offered in Jesus Christ. Father, may we truly uh, just be agents of that gospel, agents of people. People are going forth and just saying, Lord, please help us get people in the ark that their salvation may be known to you as well. Father, we thank you for that. We thank you that you are a God of justice and mercy and that you have brought it together in the person of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of His truth as you journey through this day.